Hi, this is Sam Ramsey, and you're listening to Open Source Data. Today, we're talking to Jonathan Berry. Jonathan is the founder and CEO of Goliath, a straightforward commercial IoT development platform built for scale. Jonathan has spent more than a decade building IoT solutions at companies like Google, Nest, Particle, and WeWork. And if you really want to get him going, as we're going to, ask him how he would build a real holodeck. Welcome, Jonathan. Pleasure as always. Well, one of the things that you've gotten into, as well as applying Conway's law to the structure of the problems we're solving. So for those who are not familiar with Conway's law, it was developed in a quick conversation and a presentation by Mel Conway back in 1967, I think is the first time he formulated it. Again, proving that all of these things are circles or maybe spirals, we hope. And he said, any computer system will eventually take the shape of the communication boundaries of the people who developed it. And so that tells you why we have dysfunction. But now we've started to talk about reverse Conways and the reverse Conway maneuver to start by saying, well, what's the shape that we want the software to have so the business can be successful? And therefore, how must we design the communication structure of the organization? But this is kind of straight into your inspiration for why you're doing Goliath. Because IoT, on the one hand, it's oversaturated. Lots of different technologies exist to do it. Devices, Industry 4.0. There's all these beautiful dreams of how data will transform industrial processes, manufacturing equipment, decarbonization. All this stuff starts with having data. But you've taken a real different approach. And I think getting our audience into how Conway and data and IoT come together will give them some access to your unique insights. As scientists and technologists, we can imagine how understanding our world, the atoms part with data, could unlock all these new capabilities, whether it's convenience or safety or new business value, et cetera. The challenge is the atoms and the bits are quite far apart. And as easy as for us to imagine, oh, we just send the data to the cloud and it's on a database, the actual physics between the device which is holding that information and getting into that database is a Herculean task. And it's actually an unevenly distributed problem because building a oil refinery and trying to understand what's happening at the lowest level sensor to the entire device platform refinery is different than a scooter driving around a downtown suburban area or a, a medical device in a building or a shipping container going across the Atlantic Ocean. So all these problems boil down to we have to be able to instrument these devices in a way that actually meets those requirements, They're not just the user fitting the mold and building software to meet them. It's actually modeling a system so that we can interface with the devices. And so we said, well, how do you do that? <laughs> how does every company who's building something with uh, the opportunity of creating useful data instrument those devices? And the biggest challenge is actually the company, those companies are harder companies. Those are manufacturers, those are electronics experts. And the idea of designing performant APIs and data models and streaming infrastructure and high availability databases is actually a completely different domain. Well, what if we can unlock that capability for the people who are actually making the devices, who are creating the systems that will be delivering the value around measuring the atoms so that it becomes easier for those who want to consume the bits? They just have a clean API to simplify things down to devices. Again, going back to Conway and the communication patterns between the people, to be able to put the power to create something that's useful into the hands of the people who are building it. And the gap has been this mental model, right? The more that you understand the Atoms-Bits interface, the more likely you are to be a hardware engineer. 
If you're a hardware engineer, you're more likely to think of interfaces as hardware interfaces or something close to that. You're an electrical engineering computer scientist. You're an EECS person. The biggest system that you think about is maybe local control systems. You think about PLC. And that's way too small for us to aggregate the quantity of data that we need in order to make better inferences. So if we're trying to build machine learning models out of large quantities of data to be able to understand various patterns in time and space, we need to easily get at a whole bunch of that data, typically in ways that the folks who are smart enough in the field of bits and atoms, you can't put all that knowledge in one head, how to do those interfaces for the machine to the real world and how to do the machine to the programmer. So Goliath, I think, is an answer to solving this problem of why hasn't the industry moved faster in the last decade to make the world programmable? Because of this dual domain problem, IoT is definitely a system of systems, and it requires different skill sets to work together. And if we take generalizations, there's the world of devices and the world of cloud. And a mature organization who's building a connected monitoring for industrial equipment, there's a team responsible to building this high quality device, longevity, accuracy, repeatability. And so they're focused on working with mechanical engineers on the pumps and the sensors to monitor the performance. And they just want to find their, their stopping line. And on the cloud side, they actually don't care about the pump itself. They care about what the pump's doing and understanding the behavior of that pump so they can either use things like predictive maintenance or provide information to operators and other consumers of that data. And so um, when we sit down with organizations who have these two groups within, they cooperate and they collaborate because at the end of the day, they need to work together. The hardware team, they look at the cloud as a serial port. (laughs) Once it leaves my port, it's someone else's problem. And if I could just focus on the hard parts I have to solve for on the device, then I can do my job better. And when we talk to the cloud parts, it's like, I actually don't care about compressors and electrical sensors and battery power. I just want an endpoint to receive my JSON blobs. And the challenge is, if (laughs) that's so hard to do, you have to build those in parallel, you have a lot of coordination, you have lots of project managers. And if you can solve the problem where they can collaborate better, where the hardware team just gets a black box to the cloud, just a serial port to send the data to, they don't have to worry about what's on the other end. And then the cloud team just gets a black box to the devices. And they can consume that data in a way that allows them to efficiently operate on it, distribute it, process it. Well, those teams work together. Whenever I hear the word collaboration between these organizations, I start to get tingles. It's like they both want to achieve the same thing, which is a high-quality device and a product around the devices in their field. And so our mission is to solve that piece so the two groups together can collaborate. The hardware teams can do what they do best and build great quality hardware, but also servicing the needs of the actual application data teams. And the data teams can just move faster. Things that were waterfall before can be unparalyzed. I use this term almost in irony about all these devices. And I call it the device lake. As opposed to a data lake, there's all this rich information that both the devices themselves just throw away because it's only today used to service themselves and their sort of local operation and not in the data lake where the actual business value is extracted. So if we can invert that model, we can be more successful and get closer to realizing value of data. That is a wonderful construct, the device lake. In the last couple of years, we've seen this technology solution to another Conway's Law boundary, which is front-end teams versus back-end teams. And the novel invention is GraphQL. And because it solves for the problem of synchronization of people-to-people communication, right? Forget about the device to microservice communication. It's really about being able to have 
the developers building the front-end experience not have to schedule a meeting, write a requirements doc, or otherwise socially integrate with the back-end team, but instead to have a middleware that is able to take intelligent requests, reasonably formatted based on the application's need, and then highly intelligent about how it chooses to route those requests, aggregate the results, and then hand back something useful to the developer again, all the while not bothering the microservices or backend team. That's been a breakthrough. I mean, you can look at Hasura, you can look at Prisma, you can look at Apollo GraphQL, you can just look at this enormous GraphQL renaissance, independent of the idea of graph-shaped data. It seems like Goliath is following a similar pattern as you talk about device lakes to be able to bridge these two boundaries. Why don't you take us a little bit further into the role of data in IoT and what you're doing specifically to solve for opening up that data between these two different groups? The term IoT is somewhat of an umbrella term, but in the lens we look at and the areas we focus on, there's usually something you're trying to sense about the world. That might be a device itself and sensing the behavior of that device. It might be an environment. It might be part of a larger subsystem. And large part of it is to extract as much of the data as you can about what's happening in that environment at some level of fidelity and then as reliably send it to some sort of backend. And so to facilitate that, there's a lot of stuff you have to do. For example, there's software running on that device. And so if you need to be able to change your algorithms or turn on or off different sensors as part of your operations, that's still part of extracting the data. And so the piece we're enabling for the hardware folks is being everything they need in order to facilitate the operations and the running of that device as it relates to extracting data. There's some command and control, and there's certainly a class of IoT devices that we work with, but everything ends up boiling down to how do I get the accelerometer data off this tracker, the CAN bus information off this mobility device, the weather information from an ag agricultural sensor, and do that in a way that actually works in the bounds of an IoT device. And that's where the challenge is for a company like Goliath. A scooter is different than a weather sensor because there's radio technologies involved and there's bandwidth constraints and batteries sometimes. And figuring out how to actually get the data from the device to that database is nuanced and complicated. And that's what we focus our energy on so that that harder team just gets the serial port and that cloud team just gets their endpoint and everything that goes in between. As another example of a device, wind farms are devices and each of those has got very particular operating tolerances. It's a complicated piece of machinery. It's part of a whole field. It is intelligently integrated into a weather system because you need to know what the winds are forecast to be. And then if your local microclimate has different actual experienced weather, then you need to make smart adaptations. So this leads to something that you and I talked about before, and it's a common industry term, which is a digital twin. So I think you probably have a great perspective on that construct. What's a digital twin? How does it relate to data? And why does it matter? I think digital twin is really the convergence of the atoms and bits or the point where the utility of collecting that low-level information, so is the pump on, how much current is it drawing, to is my plant healthy, is my factory performing efficiently, it's modeled in this ubiquitous but also kind of vague term of digital twin. And it really allows the first order downstream value of all this data. We're going to push away for a moment all the machine learning capabilities and predictive maintenance, but to really understand the operations of a system, the data coming off the device tends to be pretty low-level. If we're going back to these sensors, they may have very limited bandwidth, so they can only send kilobytes of data per hour. Well, you're going to send as much as you can in that information, but something has to reconstruct that. Instead of saying it's a wind turbine, well, we don't know that from the device level. We know that it's got an RPM and it's got a temperature sensor. Well, the systems around it that extract that information say, hey, 
this turbine is operating at 25% efficiency. That is really part of what gets created with that digital twin. So it's taking that low-level information and building a model of the physical device, so it's digital twin, so that humans can interact with that information in a more useful way. And usually it's an abstraction on top of it. And so the role of that data, sort of the sensors around the device, is to get that information to the hands and then actually extract it. And so I go back to humans don't use accelerometer data. They don't use RPMs. They use, is my machine on? Is it failing? What percentage of my factory is offline right now? And that's where the digital twin realm really exists. And really what we're seeing, the sort of fruits of those early data integrations. And so you're trying to embed intelligence about the device's operational parameters into the model itself. So many of the models that we've seen in the past have come from explicitly constructed models. Yes. Like, here's my hardware engineering specification. I'm going to work with a mechanical engineer. I know what these things are supposed to do. And now here's a way to think about it that is not as complicated as the entire real thing, but enough to control it. But increasingly, models are machine learning generated because the as designed, as built truths are not the same as the operational reality, which is going to be inferential. And so obviously that's driven by the data that you are able to pull off of those and get into programmers' hands, right? Hopefully and data scientists as well, if they're partying on the device lake, as you suggested. And some of the earliest use cases of IoT data and the value is around maintenance of some kind. Because the first order problem is truck rolls. Pretty much any commercial application, you want to limit them to truck rolls. So you go back to the wind turbine use case. That's a dangerous maintenance project, very expensive, very timely. One that I'm more familiar with with one of our customers is in the elevator use case. A lot of elevator contracts include maintenance. And so if you have a ski lodge that's only open two months out of the year, you're paying to send someone to check on the elevator, even though it's not being used. And so understanding the usage of these devices now eliminate that one class of problem, truck rolls. But as we start to have the capacity to actually apply intelligence in doing things like predictive maintenance, so understanding a failure of a device before it happens, looking at trend lines, and starting to actually do more intelligent things like actual machine learning from factory data and deploy the field, well, now there's additional use cases for not just reducing cost, but even things like subscription services. So, oh, you have an industrial HVAC system. We know the filter is about to clog up based off operating parameters. Can we just send your facilities team a package with all the new filters? And oh, by the way, we're going to do it right on time before you even had to do it. So this is only possible once you actually can build out these models and the twins that, that go along with it to help create these new lines of business. It's fascinating to see software models creeping into the real world. This is almost like, how do you do DevOps for Adams? Based on your observability, telemetry, as you said, predictive maintenance, you're trying to get ahead of it rather than responding to the outage. But the big transformation that you pointed at in the larger economy is, I think, that when you're focused on the compute and the application, you are looking at activities. You're selling the value of activities. As you get data-centric, you're starting to be able to sell outcomes. And so we've seen transformation of business models not even selling you the thing anymore but selling you the outcome of the thing. And two things come to mind. GE has changed their power business from selling you a turbine to selling you megawatts. They are doing the arbitrage on Mm -hmm. your business value from getting the megawatts to their cost. And then they are using data off of those engines based on the models they built from testing it to say, here's our tolerances and we're going to take accountability for that. Most recently, I ran across John Deere, got a chance to chat with the director of innovation there, and they have transformed their business from going from tractors 
to, yes, there's still a tractor, but it's a digital tractor. And now they're selling you outcomes for the farm on a per acre basis. So this is a larger change in the economy coming off of work that you and folks like you in the programmable world, what we called the IoT space, but really bringing data into creating better models and inferences or changing how we think about buying and paying for stuff and fairly large scale outcome changes. We saw this early in the consumer space. I spent a bunch of years in Nest and the demand response integration, which was very early at the time, not only saves consumers money, but actually has a positive impact on our energy load on the grid. And so if you can start applying that, not just for creating new businesses, but actually have climate improvements on the climate. So you've been at Google, at Nest, at Particle, at WeWork of late. You have a long career in product-centric thinking and product management. There's an interesting through line there, it sounds like, from Google through Nest and Particle and WeWork and now to Goliath. I'd love for you to take us through that. How has your thinking about compute and data changed through it? What are the classes of problems that are scaling up or perhaps concentrically related that you're trying to solve here? The thing I've chased a lot, even before my time in Nest, I've always worked on developer-centric products, is this idea that powerful abstractions make developers more productive. You know, we think about abstracting away the developer with low code. And the more I've seen it, especially relates to hardware, which is such a, despite being one of the oldest disciplines, that a nascent domain in technology, tooling that makes it more effective for a hardware developer to design hardware, to program hardware, to interface hardware with the cloud, yields an industry that really is just fledgling. I think about IoT when I started at Nest, we had some of the best engineers I've ever worked with. You know, starting from first principles, defining networking protocols and introducing new specifications that became parts of the fabric of the internet. And fast forward 10 years later, a lot of that exists now as building blocks. And so someone who's not a PhD with a lifetime of achievement award from the ITF can go actually design systems that are highly productive, integrated, and enabling. And that's why I get excited. And the through line, I think, is enabling teams of developers to really create more with their own bare hands and the technology around it that is that enabler. Nest is a fascinating example of what you're talking about in terms of the requirement for a very sophisticated infrastructure in order to make things possible and in order to make the data sync. So I was at Google 2016 to 2018. I think it was in 17 that I met the team called Monarch. Now Monarch, M-O-N-A-R-C-H, was the code name and therefore the internal product name for Google's next generation monitoring capabilities, right? So there was Borgmon and then Monarch came out. And Monarch was growing reasonably fast, right? I think there was a moment in time where it was processing about 20 terabytes of monitoring information from internal Google devices, data center infrastructure, security cameras every day. And you know that was pretty good, it was scaling up. And all of a sudden, in a very short amount of time, I wanna say it was a couple of months, it went from 20 terabytes a day to 80 terabytes a day. Now, fortunately, it was really well-structured. It was handled by some colleagues that you worked with previously back in the Magento days, some folks who ended up leading X-Commerce. You'll recall some of the folks like Jeremy, who was the tech lead. But what was the difference between the 20 terabytes and the 80 terabytes? It was that Nest had decided that they were going to use Monarch as their global event store. And then that number scaled up. I have no idea what the numbers are, but I suspect they're huge because there are many more Nest techniques. If you weren't Google, it would have been very difficult to have a services-led subscription capability 
that attach to that physical piece of hardware. And clearly the services led subscription business era is way more customer satisfying. It's way more powerful. And people just forget about it. They put it in their credit card and it just sits around forever, unlike a one-time purchase of hardware. So there is this interesting space of both business model transformation, transformation from whether you value the device or the data or the inferences you get from the data that you're right in the middle of. I'd love to take a slightly more technical turn off of that monarch and say, what do you see the future of IoT databases in the next five years? What do you need down below to make this stuff possible? I usually bucket IoT data into two categories, stateful information and some form of stream information. And so the underpinnings of a digital twin is the sort of state where we model a device and all the attributes. There's things like configuration information, typical classic database problems. And then the stream, which is what a lot of us think about for sensor readings, typically time series, but also there's processing involved, et cetera. And they're not too dissimilar from the other domains, like click data versus a temperature reading. And so some of the tooling we have today works great. Pretty much every IoT company I've been at or team I've worked with use an off-the-shelf database, but they have multiple. They have to understand the stateful information as well as the streaming information. Oftentimes, those data are overlapping. So, for example, a device that is measuring temperature, you might actually want to know what's the current state of that device and the temperature readings, but the entire histogram of all the readings because the value is only um, useful in combined. So you end up seeing this data stack that is a conglomeration of different data systems, whether it's the infrastructure and the storage. And I kind of see this trend line in other areas that have that similar problem, like click data and OLAP data that's converging for the purpose of that sort of overlap of those two systems. So the specialization as it relates to IoT, I think is actually less relevant here, but rather the enabling of databases to be multifunction because they are actually coming from the same source, but with different data profiles. And just an example, to take advantage of that information, you have to then build your own metadata layer on top of these multiple data sources. And you know then it adds complexity, and then there's multiple teams want to consume it in different ways. So I, I do see this sort of multi-function database will be a key enabler for simplifying the data stack for IoT. Yeah, and obviously it's also going to have to scale to embarrassing levels, scale up and scale down to meet load. But it's interesting that you point out the sense that there is an operating range that's appropriate for any given input from any given sensor. And part of the challenge that we have, of course, is that databases are so stupid. And so I look at some of the novel techniques like MindsDB, if you've run across that, but there's this sense that you could create some tolerances and some models on the fly implicitly from the data that's being stored and written. So the, each column effectively, if you think of that as a simple way to think about types of data that you might want to store for a device, can have a learned index where it knows that the appropriate range for this is between plus 50 and negative eight, but negative 10 would be really weird and plus 100 would be bizarre. So often we try to fit our computing brain and that's how you destroy rockets. If you remember the Ariane 5 explosion was a buffer overflow where they overflowed max int which is not a very high number, but they'd never tested it in practice. So we could look at that as a integration test problem, or we could look at that as a, the data type was really stupid and why wasn't it helping the programmer more to get the right thing done? So there's an interesting field of play there for what you're pointing out for the next five years, maybe smarter databases where they have more intelligent typing. They can learn on the fly and tell you what's up and then high scalability because you don't necessarily know how much you're going to have to write in order to create the system that your subscribers are going to be excited about. Yeah. And what you described, sort of the intelligence of data and when to throw it away, when to use it, that requires a whole team. 
and this idea about abstracting and empowering the developer, that logic would live in a bunch of software that data scientists, and as well as infrastructure engineers, as well as backend engineers have to go build out. If you can move that towards the database where the application developer lives, that actually could empower them to build a lot of this. And then to give you a short story, the thermostat inside the, the Nest thermostat, super high performance, high accuracy system. The complexities of measuring temperature is fascinating, especially when you try to be accurate about it. But ignoring the hardware for a moment, there was a data science team and they calibrated the, the device with a high-end lab-grade temperature in, in, in very specific environments. But when a product was installed, the first month of data was the most critical. So there's a learning phase where it would learn things like, is there a lot of sunlight getting on this device? That means it must be near a window or near a door. What is the motion in front of the device? Is it in a heavy trafficked area? At the end of the day, just to build out an inference on, on the original model that was developed by the machine learning team and then configure that device very specifically. Now it's hand-coded, handcrafted, I call it artisanal machine learning. Well, that problem is going to be similar in lots of different sensing applications. And you know, not every company is going to have a team. And why should that live as a bespoke technology stack, one-off? Maybe it was differentiated at that time, but it's less and less differentiated. And that can push that down to the point where the application team, who's the thermostat team, could have done that themselves. That's really empowering and enabling more and more value. It's so interesting to see what's going to be fragile over the long term versus what feels very clever right now. One of the points of fragility, of course, in this kind of device and machine-driven data is that in the old times, we call it OCC, right? Occasionally connected computing. There's no guarantee that you have a constant, perfect wireless or wireline signal from these devices. So part of what typically has to happen is you got to true up, right? How much data can you catch up with? How much do you summarize and hand back a summary? What's an interesting event? What do you see surfacing in the moral equivalent of OCC? And maybe you can tell me and the audience what that's called now, because you had also mentioned Edge as one of the surfaces in this new world of IoT and programmable data. The Ella Foundation has this glossary of terms related to IoT and the edge, the state of the edge, that's what it's called. And trying to develop a common vernacular because my edge is different than your edge. And this is actually one of my favorite memories when Nest was trying to get more integrated into Google. The Nest team and the Google infrastructure team, like, okay, tell us more about your stack. So it's like, okay, because you guys are edge devices and we don't understand edge that well. It's like, well, hold on. From our perspective, the world that we're sensing, our devices is the center of the universe. Anything away from that is the edge. So the cloud is the edge from our perspective. So it really depends on what we define here. And it is even more complicated than that because there's the data center edge and the municipal edge and the home edge. The challenge is depending on the type of device, the environment of the device, the constraints of the application, you have more and more luxury or less and less. Typically though, we classify almost all IT sensors as constrained devices. And they're constrained on multiple axes. That could be size, that could be battery, that could be data and bandwidth. And so depending on that use case, we'll define a lot of those, you know, how OCC it is. For example, if you're building a large volume, like a micro mobility for consumer device, every byte counts. Sometimes you actually deal with bits of data because that means your cell plan. Also, it means, can I get this bit across the wire because I'm blocked from a cell tower? And so you start to build a model of how often can I send how many chances do I have for retries? What do I do when I have to switch between towers and it uses up 20% more battery than the last transmission? And so those are the gnarly hard problems versus I'm in a factory, I've got a 10 gigabit ethernet coming to this one little sensor, which could be the same sensor in that scooter, but because of the constraints of the environment, you have to operate differently. And 
if there is an edge component, it's usually a friendly device that's helping those low-end devices, extra-constrained devices to do things like local compute, pre-processing, aggregation. But going back to the scooter use case, maybe you go offline for a little bit, you wait till you have a good signal, you send the least amount of data for the quickest amount of packet to the cloud, and then some intelligent system unravels that. You use the shorthand code to expand it to more full-form JSON. And this is the dance that the kinds of folks who we work with do all the time. But if you have a counting sensor on a factory line and that drop is right there, it's like, yeah, just send every single piece of data. And then it might change over time. Like the nest use case, if you're in learning mode or if you're in an installation mode, you might be sending a ton of data. But then if you're in a go to sleep for a period of time, that behavior will change. So the use of that data could also become something you have to plan ahead of time. So you need a ton of adaptability in the future of edge and even the present of edge. And the number of edges that you just described are so particular, it sounds to me from a programmer's perspective, it's going to be incredibly fragile because for each of these paths, it's going to be some bespoke programming based on the current state of the art. Do you see that changing? Are you creating or do you see others creating in open source a way to have a universal addressing model to be able to get right to the data that you want while letting your actual location be sort of late bound and determined by the infrastructure? Like what's happening there? I would say over the course of the past decade, it's getting better, but we're trailing the other software ecosystems at least by a decade. And by that, I mean tooling, software, open source software, because about 10 years ago, maybe 13 years ago, there wasn't even the concept of writing open source software or finding open source software that you could use on these devices. And that trend line is following the rest of software. You can go and grab an open source embedded operating system targeted for these types of devices from multiple communities and run it across hundreds, if not thousands of combinations of devices. And that's where we see a lot of our customers and also we participate in the open source ecosystem. And what would have taken a startup, I don't know, 30 engineers to go build their own operating system from scratch because you probably had to or you didn't want to pay for the licensing fee from said company who might have license. You can just go on GitHub, download a library that's been tested and validated across all this heterogeneity of devices and sensors and build your prototype in three months like what we did when we first started with Goliath. And that's yes. only because of open source. And that's the programmability on the device side. And then the sort of low-level communication, the way the devices talk to other devices into the cloud the, you know, there are standards that are being adopted slowly with commonality and common patterns that are increasingly making it easier, but we're not quite there yet. As all standards do, they lag behind the actual adoption. Joseph Jacks has a great quote, which is, open source is eating software faster than software is eating the world. And it seems yes. like you're experiencing that too, between yes. what the Eclipse Foundation have done for IoT programmability and the Linux Foundation, it all seems like it's accelerating. So interesting to look at open source and the technology, open source applies to data in many ways. I'm curious to know, what does open source data mean to you? My world is around devices creating data that's going to be used in some capacity. And the nominal case, it's for decision-making, for a human. If it's late, it's okay. But in serious applications, it could actually impact safety, reliability, and other things. And so the challenge with data is, What's the source of that data? What's the provenance and the reliability of that information? Because it has real downstream impacts. And so when I think about open source data, I think about the same challenges we face today with open source software, things like software bill of materials and signing of software and provenance to data as well, because it will actually be used in very important ways. So that's what open source data means to me. About the chain of provenance, it's going to be interesting to see what applications blockchain has for yes. transparency and provability. And of course, now we're living in a 
world where we seem to have, thank God, moved past proof of work and we're entering proof of stake. The decarbonization effect of the Ethereum merge appears to have been the equivalent of turning off Chile, the country, in terms of saving our, uh, our carbon footprints. In the non-digitized world, we have the supply chain, let's say, in the grocery and produce distribution, and now being able to digitize that so that the farmers and all the intermediaries can actually benefit but also have traceability, I think, is a big win. So we got a chance to chat with you earlier about what is a question that you've never been asked, but somebody should have asked you. So I'm going to ask you, how would you build a real holodeck? Yeah, I've been waiting for this one. You know, how much you believe canon in the Star Trek universe? There's been a ton of research in the technology behind the holodeck and how it's forming matter using optics that don't really exist in, in our planet. But there's these really cool videos that have been going around social media using ultrasonic sound to levitate devices. And the accuracy and the fidelity of these ultrasonic sensors are getting smaller and smaller. And they're not really deployed in the same way as lights. Like we have projectors that can make tiny images. But the first thing, if I were to go off and experiment with this, would be trying to figure out how to make transducers small enough such that they could move matter around and exploit the fact that we have air around us and we can compress it and we can move things and simulate the virtual world. That would be my first phase of my experiment. A swarm of levitating devices. That's pretty awesome in terms of programmability of the real world. Jonathan, you've done a ton of stuff. You've led big products that were at the edge of their time. I mean, to, to get a sense of how at the edge, like you were at MySpace when that was big, and obviously we continue to move through the world. You were at Magento and had a hand on X-Commerce. You were at Google, you were at Nest, you were at Particle, you were at WeWork, and, and now building your own company at Glack. What's a resource or a piece of advice you'd give to our audience who is incredibly excited about this idea of industrial data or this ability to connect the world of atoms to the world of bits so that we can create something awesome? The first thing I tell entrepreneurs is anchor in the problem space. Don't talk about technology. Don't talk about sensors or your business model. Think about the user, the environment, the existing ecosystem that you have to integrate with and work backwards from there. Because oftentimes, uh, an IoT solution tends to be extremely simple. And the technology can be simplified if you really understand the value and the problem, the value you're trying to solve for, and then bring the technology on for the ride. I've, I've seen way too many over-engineered solutions that never get to market because they were solving for the wrong problem. So anchor around the user and the problem, and you'll find more success that way. That's awesome. Jonathan, it's been great to get to have this conversation with you. I think we're going to see more changes in the real world as a result of using data in the way that Goliath is driving and this collection of open source data ecosystem capabilities for all this kind of communication. So I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes and where you take it personally. Thanks, Sam. I'm backstage with our executive producer, Audra Montenegro. Hey, Audra. Hey, Sam. So Audra, what were your takeaways from the conversation we just had with Jonathan? You know, I'm always excited to hear guests' passions. And Jonathan says that he's always been building for developers. And now here he is at Goliath, basically collecting all the data that devices throw away. And he uses the term device lake. That was such a cool expression. I'm going to have that stuck in my head for a while. And then open source data is the software bill of materials, which kind of lends to his perspective of the future of IoT. So databases being multifunctional. So we can better enable these teams. So not only enabling developers, enabling teams, but just enabling people. Yeah, that's awesome. You're pointing directly at Jonathan's heart. And I think it's the core of anybody building great tools for developers. So 
Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks to our audience for listening today. If you liked the podcast, please give us a five-star rating on your favorite platform. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. Please drop me a tweet at OSD underscore podcast. And a special thanks to the Caspian Studios team, our producer, Alexa Minter, program management, Videm Yuri and Kyle Reska. For audio and visual engineering, Scott Goodrich and Evan Ha, as well as creative producer, Landon Pontius. And of course, the Datastacks team, social leader, Lauren Goal, and Katie Asher with the web design team. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of Open Source Data.